everyone, this is Pedro Graterol and this is another episode of Notes, a podcast about the world and everything that I find interesting in it, which is a lot of things. This is the first episode in a while. The last time we recorded one of these, it was a very different world. But I decided it was a good idea to make a comeback. And also because I'm doing this for a project for a class, so that has to do with it a little bit. But in this episode, we're going to be talking about a piece written by American composer Kristen Kosner. This piece is called When There Are Nine, and it's based on the life of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away earlier this year. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the piece, the context of the piece, and some of the larger trends in the world of classical music. It's going to be a lot of fun. Stick around. In a survey done in the 22 largest American orchestras, 1.8% of the pieces in the 2014 and 2015 season were written by female composers. Let's look at this number again, 1.8% of pieces. This number is not surprising considering the fact that there is an implicit bias towards composers of the past, who were in a majority European men. Perhaps, and from a methodological perspective, it would be better to look at the performances of living composers to see what was the gender composition instead of the performances. When we do that, we find in the same survey that 14.3% of the performances of the music performed were, was written by female composers. This is a problem. In a world in which half of the population is female, we should expect at least half of the music written to be female. You see, I'm a firm believer that the concert hall cannot exist as a museum. The concert hall cannot reflect a past that was discriminatory and that does not open the door to the multiple realities that are inside of the human experience. As musicians, or music in itself has a social responsibility. Orchestras and ensemble are a reflection of the communities and the worlds that surround it. And it's a place in which communities and groups of people come and are transformed by the beauty of art and music. Hence, I think that the music performed by orchestras must be representative of the world that orchestras serve. Therefore, the status quo needs to change. There needs to be reform in the world of classical music. This episode of this podcast is an exploration of a protest piece, When There Are Nine by Christine Kostner which reflects on the life and times of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This is meant as a contribution to the attempts to make music more equitable. All music, especially that of composers who are not traditionally represented, deserves to be analyzed. Therefore, we're going to look a little bit about the biography of the composer and some of her, the characteristics of her style before we go into talking about this piece specifically. Okay, let's do a bit of a biographical note. Kristen Koster is an American composer that was born in 1973 in North Carolina. She studied with William Balcom and William Albright, and she currently holds a position of composition professor at the University of Michigan School of Music. Her style is very famous for using color fading, different effects, as well as very characteristic and uncharacteristic instrumental groupings instead of larger ensembles. Let's talk about this a little further. 
Coster is a composer of symphonic works, wind ensemble music, and vocal ensembles. Instead of, a, instead of the compositions, composers tend to group instruments so that they have the melody and others have the accompaniment. That's a whole science. Coster is very famous for using her compositions, sometimes very traditional ensembles instead of larger ensembles, like wind trios, wind quartets, but sometimes also plays with the idea of putting the piccolo and the bass clarinet doing melodies together, which creates very interesting effects in music. In addition, her harmonic language moves between dissonance and consonance. She uses a lot of discrete classes. All of this is present in a doctoral dissertation written by Chester Brian Phillips, actually, that focuses exclusively on her music. The piece that will be analyzed today, which I have mentioned three times by now, was commissioned for the Cabrillo Music Festival which took place in the summer of 2019. Kristen Kostner wrote When There Are Nine, she wrote the music for vocal ensemble, orchestra, and a soloist. And it was used also, the poems for Megan Levat were also used. They have worked together multiple times and some of their other work is super cool. Now, Kostner was very specific talking about the piece, that this was a protest piece. This threw me in a bit of a loop. I've been taking a gender and music class on my, for my music major, and I've been thinking a lot about what is a protest piece, and this concept has been in my mind for a while now. Because I think that a protest piece is a piece that is inherently political. This can mean political in the same way as Beethoven scratched Napoleon to name from the Third Symphony and used the symphony as a protest to the Napoleonic eras. It can mean also the way Soviet Stalinism is present in everywhere of Shostakovich's work. However, I also believe that everything is inherently political, from the way we organize our cities, from the different aisles in the supermarket. Politics is everywhere. Hence, if protest music is music that is political, wouldn't then all music be political music? So this distinction or this taxonomy was not being very useful for me. However, I realized, especially doing the research for this project, that I was not making the distinction between political music and protest music. Political music is music that has to do with politics. This is a very broad definition, but protest music is a very particular type of music. It's music that is aimed to create social reform, to shine a light on realities that are norm normally presented, and that aims to create change. I think what Custer was trying to say is that Music written in general by female composers can be considered protest music, just because traditionally the musical establishment has not been very friendly towards female composers. And the fact that it's music written by a person is female identifying, it's already an aim to change the status quo and to drastically reform the existing system for the better. So it can be considered a protest music. And protest music, especially a paper that was written by Way in 2016, has a very powerful message as a very powerful semiotic message of authenticity that has proven to be able to channel social movements but also to create lasting change so it's very important to look at music like this seriously hence that's why we're doing this project okay now we're gonna go actually to talking about the piece The first movement of the piece is called Innumerable Drafts. In this movement, the composers linked Ginsberg's work as a lawyer 
to a literary profession like an editor or a writer. This is very interesting. I'm currently taking a media and law class. And what has been fascinating is that we find legal documents and laws and regulations to be incredibly strict and almost dry. But the work of interpreting all of these materials, it's quite artistic. Artistic in a way, not because it implies creativity, but I mean, it does. But because there is no exact science behind the reason of this, and all of these professionals have to look to different traditions and different aspects and put their own interpretations of the world and of the material that they have in front, kind of like the same way as performers look at music that is written hundreds of years before them and make a telling of this in our modern world. Also, there is this larger mythology of artists as social reformers. So it's very interesting that Costner compares the legal studies with a literary profession because it places Ginsberg in the larger mythology of the artist reformer that, was been, that has been very common in the world of opera and things of this nature. There is one lyric actually in this movement that especially got my attention because the vocal ensemble says not what we were but what we could, talking about female empowerment. A lot of the composition in this movement has these very similar phrasal structures that build towards the last word. There's a lot of emphasis on last words, and the last word is built upon very dissonant chords. This is gonna get a little bit meta, but the usage of a dissonant chord towards the end, emphasizing the word could and the word possibility and all of the lyrics that are meant to create change, places this dissonance as a disruption of a standard order that is like the traditional harmony. So, in my opinion or in my analysis of the piece, Kostner is presenting Ginsburg in this disruption, in this dissonance, and is creating a conception of her as a traditional artist reformer that breaks the status quo of tonality and creates a world in which the ideas of chromaticism, which for a while has been associated with female characters in opera, has a place in the world of music. So this movement is very interesting. <laughs> okay, I think it's a good idea to go on to the next one. The second movement of the piece is called The Pedestal is a Cage. In this movement, the instrumentation changes a lot. We're introduced to a full orchestration, including marimbas and everything, and it sounds very 20th century. This movement made me think about Stravinsky the entire time. And it was very interesting. Again, the theme of dissonance continues happening when talking about major political changes. So the idea of dissonance as change continues to be presented throughout the movement. In addition, the piece has a lot of operatic and soloistic elements. It sounds to an extent like an aria in which the speaker seems to be Ginsberg. When talking about politics, there's a lot more reliance on operatic technique, heavier vibrato, a higher register. So this continues to play homage to Ginsberg because while implying opera, operatic techniques, they're tapping into larger trends in the history of music in which Opera, like in its original intention, was based on portraying mythological characters or stories that were highly valued by the current society. In the time period of the 17th and 18th century, when opera was the hottest ticket in the show, it was the moment in which communities came in together or cities came in together to look at the values that they believed in. 
So it made sense that all of these operas were based on Greek mythology, Roman mythology, or folktales like the case in Germany that were very valued. So it's very interesting that Costner is presenting this vision of Ginsberg as almost not as a mythological figure, but as a figure that is highly respected and responsible for the modern zeitgeist. Also, it sounds like a very 60s spy music for a reason. And something that was very interesting about this movement is that it made me think a lot about the idea of positive stereotypes. One of the lyrics that caught my attention, especially, and I have it here in my notes, is the idea of too delicate for civic responsibility. There's an entire section in the movement where the speaker is criticizing the view of the world that says that women, whether too nice or too delicate or too committed to beauty, to be part of the civic world. In a way, unlike other forms of, oppre of oppression, these stereotypes are not denigrating. In fact, it's trying to put women in a pedestal as something that is worth protecting. But in that way, they're putting in a pedestal that is a cage, hence the name of the movement. And what is special about this movement, it's especially the end. Because the entire ensemble, the entire vocal ensemble, sings almost in unison, brother, brother, stand by me, so that they can lift the feet of our neck, the foot of our neck, so that we can rise together and see that we could be. I really find interesting the idea of the we can rise together. It reminds me of the work of James Baldwin, who was talking about the idea that racial liberation in the US was tied to the role of the oppressed and the oppressor. So I think it's very interesting that the view that is presented here, which is also very important in Ginsberg's work, is the idea of breaking gender norms to create equality and to like allow both the oppressed and the oppressed both the oppressed to stop suffering from the oppression that it goes through but also the oppressor to stop suffering from the act of oppressing another person so it's fascinating movement three of the piece is called path marking this movement also touches in one of my research interests in the field of music, which is the concept of the assertions of humanity or the ways in which different composers establish what it's like to be a human being or to highlight life itself. The beginning of this movement has a soprano saying a pedal in A. It sounds like a metronome and you have it constantly hearing as the chorus develop on stories about the conditions of what it meant to be a woman in the 20th century. Stories about difficulty of access to standard procedures, forced sterilizations, all create a lot of tension in the movement. By far, this is one of the darkest movements of the piece. And all of this tension resolves until the full choral ensemble says the term Oye. Oye is a... Yeah, it's a little bit of an ancient term. It's at least from the... It was used a lot during the 17th, 18th century with an establishment of modern judicial procedures. And it meant the arrival of a judge current actual hearings of the Supreme Court begin when the associate judges and the chief justice of the Supreme Court is presented and then the announcer says the term, oh yeah. So this movement is very interesting because it shows an before and an after. And the arrival of the Oye probably represents the legal actions that had to be taken in order for this reality to be changed. Actually, while we're at it, 
the Oye is repeat, repeated multiple times by the choir. And afterwards, it has a reflection on the way all of these stories influenced uh, Ginsburg's legal actions. And this section is presented with very traditional choral harmony. What is interesting about this is that, as I was saying before, it marks the before and the after from the very tense, very dissonant stories of horrific human experiences that were separated by legal action and then become a more traditional and at least consonant way of approaching music. One of the most useful resources when doing research for this project was an interview that Coster did talking about the origins of the piece, the way she was approached by the festival organizers, and they grilled the idea of doing a protest piece, but they also told her that it had to have some moments of levity, some moments of fun. I think this movement, La Gioconda, the fourth movement of the piece, is a fair example of this. This movement depicts the visit of a very young Ginsberg seeing a high school depiction of La Gioconda, which is an opera by Ponicelli, but also a play by the famous writer Victor Hugo. This movement is musically very different from the rest of the movements. It's, for one, incredibly consonant and tradition. It sounds like a like a classical opera. So I think the author is intending here to take us to the world that Ginsburg was seeing when she was fascinated by seeing this performance. The following movement after that continues the idea of levity and it's called Riding an Elephant. Actually, this is a very famous story of Ginsburg because she was very close friends with also another Supreme Court Justice, Antonin Scalia. Curiously, they were from very different political beliefs and in a trip that they did to, I think it was India, but I cannot, I am not certain right now, they took a picture riding an elephant, as it is common in trips of this nature. In this photo, the, it became viral, at least in the time period, uh, that Ginsburg was sitting behind and Scalia in the front. A lot of discussions around the photo argued that it was an issue of gender disparity, that why Scalia had to be in the front. And when Gisberg was asked about it, she actually said that the situation was not so much about gender disparities, but rather weight distribution, and that it was safer for the elephant to, for them to be seated in that order. So yeah, this movement talks about that story, and it's super interesting and honestly kind of fun. The following movement is by, hard, by far the hardest to analyze. It's called On Descent. This movement returns to the soundscape of earlier in the piece, the one that is full of fleeting dissonance and eeriness. In the lyrics, the soloist outlines some of the mistakes that were done by the Supreme Court, most notably Plessy versus Ferguson, in which the court outlined that a black person was essentially not human. And in this movement, the soloist and the ensemble look towards the future. They reflect on the role that hope plays as a catalyzer of social movements. All of these over mentions of the Lux Eterna. The Lux Eterna is a component of the traditional Catholic Mass, which is a piece of music that is meant to accompany a 
a mass, a, a religious ritual. And in one of the lyrics, it says, May light perpetual shine upon them. I think it's very interesting that there's this juxtaposition of hope and light. Not only that, but eternal light. I think to an extent the composer is using this equation between hope and light to characterize the idea as hope being essential and being almost a religious component to the idea of social movements. Because these movements are not fueled normally by the depictions of the present because a social movement cannot be fueled by a present that, that is not positive towards the reforms that they want to achieve, but rather looks towards the future, this future in which things turn out okay. So I think the composition is trying to look at that. The following movement is called Formarti. It's a complete vibe change from the rest of the piece because it returns to the more cheerful, the more humorous characters of the work. The movement sounds a lot like a pop song and I think it's a very important movement. Even though it's not like the rest of the piece that highlights the legal aspects, the legal jargon and the, the life-changing moments of Ginsberg, I think it's also important because in a piece that serves to represent an homage as a human being, I think it's also important to highlight aspects that make them more than a figure, a person. And having this pop song, which is what is music for normal individuals, then it is shown that it, not only Ginsburg has this like, character as a monumental figure, but she also has a very human side that is explored here by the way she interacts with her husband or husband-to-be. The following movement is called Undignity, which is one of the hardest to analyze in the entire work. The reason why this movement is so hard is because it is written in legal jargon. It's based on Ginsburg's testimony to the House Judiciary Committee, which is an important step before a judge gets confirmed to the Supreme Court. In this one, Ginsburg makes the argument in favor of reproductive rights. She says that the decision to bear a child is so central to a woman's dignity and well-being that if the government regulates that decision, it is treating her less than a human. The movement returns to the soundscape in which the soloist that is meant to represent Ginsburg presents like an aria this argument. What is very interesting from this is that the jargon combined with the aria-like character remind me a lot to the first movement in which it argued that the profession of being a legal scholar was more art than a science. That was the discussion that we were saying earlier in the episode. So I think it's very interesting that those two trends are coming together here because in a very beautiful choral piece, the idea of a very dry but relevant legal argument is presented. So yeah, this is this movement. <laughs> The last movement of the piece, which is the ninth movement, I don't think it's a coincidence there's nine movements. The piece is called When There Are Nine. There is nine Supreme Court justices. And yeah, so the connections are there. I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat, I promise. But the last movement is called A Push-Up is a Push-Up is a Push-Up. It is based on the stories of Ginsburg's trainings with her personal trainer, like her fitness trainer. 
I think this movement is very interesting because I know I make every music analysis about duality, but fundamentally duality is everywhere in music. So let's go for it. But in this piece, you have two large trends. This idea of a very heavy political protest piece in which all of the legal aspects and all of the impacts of Ginsburg as a legal scholar are analyzed. And also this very humanizing piece in which aspects are like the way she loved her husband, her experiences with Antonin Scalia, her inspirations to become a legal scholar that come from the Gioconda are also explored. The last movement combines them together and talk about Ginsburg's experiences doing push-ups. Now, these push-ups are not only referred as the exercise, which, by the way, I'm unable to do, but that they're presented as a push-up in the sense of moving forward, or advancing a movement forward. The evidence for this is found that the training that is being talked about in the movement is not only physical training, but they even say the training for the long revolution, and that a push-up is a push-up, and that that's something that needs, needs to continue to be trained. In this movement, Kristen Kostner, the poet, and the work as a whole is trying to exemplify that the idea of change and the idea of protest is something that happens in very in a very long form and that it requires constant training and constant struggle for it to happen. So I think it is a nice message for the piece to end at. Well, with this, we come to the end of this analysis. In this episode, we looked at different existing trends in the world of classical music in regards to the quality of composers in the area of gender, and the social relevance of music, both as a protest piece and the role that it plays for its larger community. Then we had an analysis movement by movement of Kristen Kostner's piece, When There Are Nine, in which we saw how the piece looks at Ginsburg, at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the late Supreme Court Justice, and humanizes her both by highlighting through operatic elements her role as a legal scholar, but also by presenting with fun snippets of anecdotes of her life that there's also a human aspect to her. Works like these, written by women, talking about female stories, are important because they help break the existing status quo in the world of classical music. There's a lot of stories that have been told many times. It is very important for us, especially as we are in a moment in which classical music is looking to reinvent itself, uh, to consider these stories and to find art in places or in communities that normally are not heard from. So I think it's important to continue moving in that direction. Thank you and see you guys hopefully less than a year from now. Bye.